We're back in our study in Luke, excited to do that. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisles now, so you can have a Bible in your hand. While you're turning there, special announcement. Next Sunday, when you come back to church, we will have a very special guest with us, our dear friend and our ministry partner, Nopum, will be here. Yes, all the way from... Myanmar. Now, if you're new to our church and you have no idea who Nopum is, so Nopum is a pastor and a missionary in Myanmar, which is a very difficult place to represent the gospel, very difficult place to spread the gospel. And Nopum has become just an incredible partner. We have been blessed to walk alongside him, to join him in his ministry, to help him. And here's what's happened. Over the years, about four years now, we have sent teams over to Myanmar to help and serve and build and do what we can. And every time the same thing happens, those teams come back having received far more than they gave. Amen. Isn't that how it works? Nopum's passion, his vision. This guy is just so inspirational. And so we thought, let's bring him to Oregon and let him share with our church. So he'll be here next Sunday. He'll be preaching out of the Gospel of Luke. It's going to be so cool. And so you don't want to miss it. Come back for that. But today we turn to Luke chapter 10. Will you look there with me now? Luke 10. What if you could see the mission of the church from inside of the heart and the mind of God. What if you could see the church, see the mission of the church, see the mission of Christ from inside of God's heart and God's mind? What would it, what would it do? How would it change your perspective? Of course, I'm talking about perspective here. There's something so powerful when you try to get inside of someone else's shoes, someone else's head. It's really, it's powerful in our human relationships, isn't it? To try to see things the way someone else sees them. We know this in our relationships, dating relationships and marriage relationships. You think, oh, if only my spouse could see what I see, feel, look at this the way I'm looking at it, right? Isn't that an amazing? People are elbowing their spouses right now. I, I did some premarital counseling with a couple and the, the young lady was saying to her, to her future husband, I just wish you could read my mind, you know? And, she was like, and he was like, tell me what to do. I want to make you happy. And she's like, if I tell you what to do, it won't be as meaningful because then you'll only be doing it because I told you to do it. And he was like, but I want to be, you know, what if, right? How about you? What if you could get inside someone else's head and see things from their perspective? And what if you could get up into heaven? Now think about this and see the church, see our church, see the mission of Christ, but see it through God's heart and God's values and God's priorities. Whoa. How would it change things? How would it change things? And of course, that's what Luke is trying to do, right? We learned last week. If you're here last week, if you weren't here, go back. We learned a critical lesson about the church. We learned the church. What is the church? The church is a community on the way with Jesus. That's what the church is. It's not a building. It's not an institution. The church is a family of believers 
who are seeking Christ, following Christ. We talked about this idea of Jesus on a journey. This is called the travel narrative we're studying. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and there are these followers going with him. They become the way, the people of God, this living, breathing, moving community that's constantly seeking Christ, wanting to see reality through the eyes of Christ, right? And the very first lesson that Jesus teaches this new community is about the mission. He sends them out in twos, Luke chapter 10. So I've titled our sermon, Heavenly Perspective on an Earthly Mission. That's what we're going to do. We're going to see who we are through God's mind. We look at it with me, Luke 10. Our passage is a little long today, 24 verses, but as, you, uh, as I read this, will you notice how often Jesus pops up and tries to show us things from heaven's vantage point? So fascinating. Luke 10, 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now that verse, I just read verse two. Nopum is going to preach that verse next Sunday. We're letting Nopum preach to us about praying to the Lord of the harvest. He has got some stuff to say about that. Amen. In fact, from this point on, I will not even mention this verse. I'm just going to let Nopum have it, okay? Verse three. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Sounds really intense, doesn't it? It sounds like this huge condemnation. You know what's amazing? That's actually not condemnation. It's a loving warning. And there's a difference. It's a way of saying, please, please, you who are in this moment thinking of rejecting what you're hearing about Jesus, do not reject this. This is the words of life. So this action of wiping dust off the feet was a way to say, what you are doing is so critically devastating. Do not do this. Powerful, actually. Jesus says, go out, wipe the dust off your feet. Then, of course, he goes on. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Right? Now, Luke is the only gospel writer who tells this account, sending of the 72. Matthew, Mark, John, they do not tell us. It's only Luke. And what's interesting about it is that this account is extremely similar to account just one chapter earlier, the beginning of nine, which you remember, where Jesus sends out 12. 
And there's lots of similarities, actually. In both of the accounts, Jesus gives them, when he sends them out, he gives them really elaborate packing orders. He's very concerned about how they pack for these things. He's like, don't take a money bag. Don't take a knapsack. Don't take extra sandals. The idea being, I want my missionaries, I want my representatives in this world to live in such a way where it's obvious that you're trusting God for everything. Trust me, don't, don't be so prepared in your life that you never experience what it's like to depend on God to provide your next meal or your next provision as my followers. Amazing. And in both, Jesus says this thing of don't go from house to house, you know. Don't go to the neighbor's house if the accommodations are nicer. The Johnsons have a hot tub. Let's head over there. It's nicer. The food's better. Jesus is like, don't do that because my missionaries are supposed to live in such a way where it's obvious they are not out for personal gain or comfort or benefit. They are out to serve me faithfully. So Jesus says, go, don't take a lot. Preach the gospel, heal the sick. Word indeed, so powerful. Lots of similarities, but... Luke tells us two versions of that, and they both happen in one version. He sends out the 12. We'll talk about that in a moment. And in this version, he sends out a different number of people. And we have to figure out what that number means. So will you look back with me? Let's keep reading. Woe to you. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who rejects, the one who hears me, um, the one who hears you hears me, pardon me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They are fired up, right? And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Whoa, what a statement. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We'll talk about it. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. No, you rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. That word rejoiced, by the way, that word is really big. It's, it's, it's exultant. It's like doing the happy dance rejoicing, all right? This is not like somber church people rejoicing. This is like, no, we're pumping our fists. Jesus was so fired up with joy and gratitude in the Holy Spirit. Why? Here's what he said. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear 
and did not hear it. Okay, this passage is astounding. It's big, I get it, but you have to see the whole thing or you can't understand the parts. So what I want to do is I'm going to tell you one of the ways that I will write a sermon. I usually will write a sermon by imagining what you are thinking when you are hearing a passage read. What are the questions that you're asking? Because my guess is if you're asking a question as you're reading something, that's probably something that I would want to talk about. Because I recognize sometimes you come to church, maybe you're even new to the church, and you've got all these questions, and you sit through a service, and you think, I don't understand all this. Do you know what? That's totally normal. Totally normal. All right? If you're a person who has lots of questions, this is the church for you. Let me tell you something. I met with a young woman uh, last month, and she has been coming to the church for a year, and she told me, I sit through service, and I don't understand half of what you're talking about, dude. (laughs) And so she's like, so what I started doing is I started writing down all these questions I have. She was really new, and she said, I started bringing those questions back with me every Sunday, and I was amazed at how God would answer all of my questions as Sunday after Sunday would unfold, and she's getting baptized this month. How cool is that? (laughs) Praise God. Do you have questions? awesome. I have questions. Here's four that I think we have to answer. There's dozens. I just chose the four that I think are the most critical. Number one, what is the significance of the number 72? Is it random? Is it, did Jesus just stop at 70? I mean, he could have stopped at 68. He could have stopped at 102. Just needs to be an even number, right? Because of the pairs. Or Does that number have meaning? Question one. Question two. When did Jesus see Satan fall like lightning? And perhaps you're thinking, why are you asking when? Isn't the question, what does that mean? (laughs) Well, I'm going to answer that too, but let me tell you something. The more important question is, when did Jesus see that happen? You'll see it when we get there. What's the significance of 72? When did Jesus see Satan fall like lightning? Question number three, why is Jesus rejoicing? There's a lot, actually a lot of rejoicing in this passage. The disciples are fired up about stuff, and then Jesus is rejoicing. What does Jesus rejoice about? And what can we learn from it? And then question number four, who cares? Seriously. <laughs> Part of that was I wanted a what, when, why, who. But uh, what, I'm really doing, what I'm really doing here is, pastor, apply this to my life. Tell me what to do. I will. We're going to talk about what, what should I do with this, all right? We'll just call it who cares, all right? Go with me. Come on in. Four questions. Here we go. Number one, what's the significance of the number 72? Often in the Bible, numbers have symbolic meaning. Not always but often they do. Meaning a number is like an echo that takes you back to somewhere else in the story where you go, wait a minute, that number, that number means something. It's like a, a, one scholar talks about it using the, the analogy of a hyperlink. Do you know what a hyperlink is when you're online and you see one of those, oh, there's a word that's highlighted in blue and you can tell that's a hyperlink. If I click on that, it'll take me somewhere else 
to another document or another webpage with more information, numbers are often hyperlinks, and the number 72 is a hyperlink. You read the number, and the, the original Hebrews would have said, wait a minute, that takes me somewhere else in the Bible. Where? I'll tell you where. Genesis chapter 10. Will you turn there with me now? Keep your finger in Luke 10. The number 72 means something. The number 12 meant something, right? 12 apostles. That was a hyperlink to the 12 tribes of Israel and their leaders. And then Jesus chooses new leadership for the people of God. How many does he choose? 12. And then Jesus walks into a crowd in Luke 10. He walks through and he picks people to go on a mission. And he stops at the number 72. And everyone there went, Genesis 10. What happened in Genesis 10? Will you look at it with me? Verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, that's how you really say it. Lots of Hebrew, okay? Say that, Ham, okay? And Japheth, sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read all these names, all right. But now, skip down to verse 31. So, so the, the, he breaks these down into lists under the three sons of names. And then in verse 32, actually, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And here's what I want you to know. If you went into Genesis 10 and you counted all of the names of the sons who become the nations of the earth, do you know what number it adds up to? 72. And you know what? I counted it last night because that's what pastors do on Saturday night. You're like, what'd you do, pastor? I counted the sons of Japheth. It was a party at the McMurray house. Why? I had read in commentaries that that's the number, but I wanted to find out for myself. And you know what? It is. It's 72 names. The number 72. What does it represent? It represents all of the nations of the earth that spread out and their languages. Because in Genesis 11, what happens next? The Tower of Babel, God confuses the languages, and now we have 72 languages that spread out over the globe. The number 72 symbolizes the nations of the earth. But more than that, it's not just a symbol. The number 72 is trying to tell us something about the heart of God. What if you could go up into heaven and see the mission of the church to the heart of God? What would you see? You would see a heart for the nations with the church at the center of the mission to take the gospel there. Go back to the moment. There's Jesus. He wants to teach his disciples about mission. He walks through a crowd of hundreds probably, and he picks them and he pairs them off in twos, and he stops at the number 72. And every disciple there was going, 72? Wait a minute. This is about the table of nations. This is about the nations of the earth. Jesus, are you saying that our mission is to go and take the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation? And Jesus was about to say, precisely. Because that's the heart of the God. That's the heart of God. That's why Jesus says to them, these 
the Jewish cities, Bethsaida, Chorazin, they, they will reject. Why? So that the gospel will spread to Tyre and Sidon, which were Gentile cities. Gen- they were outsiders. Jesus is saying, don't you realize this is the heart of God? This is the heart of God. And who are we? We are the church on the way with Jesus to learn what? To learn the heart of God, our mission. Do you know the heart, God's heart is for Myanmar? God's heart is for Myanmar. Do you know how many people in Myanmar have never heard the name Jesus? Millions. This is why Nopum, this is why we're so thankful for Nopum. Nopum is, he is unstoppable. He will not stop. When you, when he, when you come next Sunday and you hear him, you will realize that person will not stop until the gospel has spread to Myanmar. He's so passionate. I get around Nopum and I'm a hard worker. I get around Nopum and I'm like, I am the laziest slob on the planet. Nopum is so driven. Why? It's not Nopum's heart. It's the heart of God. Nopum gathered his, in 20 years ago, the first church meeting in Myanmar, they gathered in a, in a straw hut in his home and the neighbors threw stones at the hut during the whole service because they were so against Jesus. But Nopum said, I won't. I have to figure out what to do. So Nopum realized there's a way, there's a way that we can share Jesus here. People care about education and they want their kids to be educated and they often can't pay for it. So we'll form boarding schools where kids from Buddhist families can come and get an education and they can hear about Jesus. Many of those kids get saved. They get leadership training and then they go home and they go home as missionaries for the cause of Christ. Why? Because it's the heart of God. Amen? The heart of God. Do you know that God's heart is for the Arab-speaking world? God's heart is for that. Arab-speaking world. Last month, my wife and I had dinner with a missionary couple, Camille and Rachel Kilata. We went with Pastor Guy and Maureen, Christopher and Julie, and we, they, Camille and Rachel lead a ministry called MEMO, Middle Eastern Missionary Organization, They go into Egypt and they train Christians to take the gospel into the Arab-speaking world. And these people are so amazing. They're so inspiring. Guy and I are flying to Egypt in October to teach there, teach some missionaries, but also learn more about the ministry. Please pray for us. Pray for us. But we sat in Camille and Rachel's living room when they're stateside. They're over here in Clackamas. And they fed us this feast. And Kathy and I got to sit with Rachel Camille was in the other room, and Rachel just told her whole story. She's an American, but she married Camille, who's from Egypt, and she just talked about her passion for Christ, and she talked about how hard it was to do an interracial marriage like that, cross-cultural marriage, and how challenging, and she sought the Lord, and she was telling her story, and Kathy and I are like, this lady is just so passionate. She has the heart of God. She said, I didn't know if I was supposed to marry Camille, and we were dating and I was praying about it. And one day I, she looked so intense. She was like, I prayed. And God said to me, Rachel, do you see that man? Your mission is to make that man the happiest man on the planet. And I kicked Kathy under the table. And I was like, did you hear that? <gasps> no, no, I did. Because she's already done that. But then she talked. She talked about 
the gospel in the Arab-speaking world and her heart and why she and Camille are so passionate. And we realized we've got to help these people as a church. We've got to help them. We've got to figure out, is this River West supposed to do something about this? Why? Is it about Camille and Rachel? No, it's the heart of God. The heart of God is for the nations. That's question one. Question number two. When did Jesus see Satan fall like lightning? In verse 17, the 72 return after their mission. They're pumped up. They come back and they are high-fiving. It's like the winning team walking into the locker room. (laughs) They are like, oh, Jesus, the demons were subject to us in your name. They are fired up. And Jesus says, in that moment, it's very interesting. He's connecting what they're talking about to something else. Like take a high lift and leave earth and go up into heaven so you can see what's happening from a heavenly perspective. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Whoa. And what happens when you, when you study this passage is you realize one of the main questions that scholars ask is, when, when did this happen? The what is actually clear. It's a loss of power. It's a fall from power. That's, that's only what it means. Satan has lost power. The question becomes, when did it happen? Did this happen sometime long ago? Is Jesus talking about something in the remote past? Is he talking about something in the present? Was he seeing a vision that was unfolding while his disciples are out having this victory? Or is Jesus talking about something in the future when Jesus returns the ultimate fall? And the problem is that all three of those options have strong biblical evidence. And so scholars debate. Scholars say there's lots of evidence that Jesus is referring to a passage in Isaiah. I'll just put it on the screen. Look at this where Isaiah says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. That phrase, O day star, in the Latin is the word Lucifer. Interesting. How you are fallen. How you are cut down to the ground. You who, had the, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the, above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And that language is so similar to Luke 10 that people say that. So, because that is a description of the original when Satan became Satan, this cosmic usurping of God's authority by a star, a son of God who is booted out and falls. And you go, is that what Jesus is talking about? Or is Jesus talking about something he's seeing right now? Because the problem with the remote past is that Satan clearly still has power in our world after that fall. But also Satan continues to have power after the present, so that's problematic. A lot of scholars think Jesus is referring to a prophecy in Revelation 12. That's this end times vision of the final battle and the victory. Satan and all of his angels, his, his, his cohort are cast down into the lake of fire. And you read it and you go, well, which one is it? Past, present, or future? Which is it? What do you think my answer is? Yes. Yes. It's all of it. 
Do you realize that statement, I saw Satan fall like lightning, is a little window into the eternal Christ, the Christ who transcends time and space, the Christ who was there before the foundations of the world, the Christ who of his own accord entered human space and time to walk among us, the Christ who would say, do you know where I was when Satan originally fell? I was there. And now I'm here as the ultimate power of God to continue the victory of G over Satan through my death and my resurrection. And it will be me who will return in the end times to complete what I started. It's Jesus who said, before Abraham was, I am eternal Christ. What if you could go up in heaven and see the church and see the leader of that church from God's mind and God's heart would have changed what you thought of the church? Boy, I hope so. Because the church is not just a building. It's not just about carpet and chairs. See, what happens is when we when we get our eyes off of that perspective and we get down into the minutiae, and the little things that don't matter, we start fighting about those things. And churches split. I've heard stories of churches splitting over all kinds of stuff. I heard a story of a church that split over fried chicken. It happened, fried chicken. Because there was a new pastor and he showed up to the first, first picnic, okay? And he didn't know that there was a feud between two families. And so, and both of those families made fried chicken that day. And he went to the first fried chicken and he ate some. And he was like, this is the best chicken I've ever eaten. And the second family left and they started a new church one mile away with the same name. It's true. This story is true. Okay. I've heard a story, stories of churches that split over the coffee, the lighting, the, the worship style. Why would churches get caught up in minutia? Because we've lost a perspective that we desperately need, which is to pop back up into the eternal realm and see the Christ, the eternal Christ, who was there when the fall of all evil power began and who would be the one who would bring that to completion. And the church is the way of Jesus, following him. He's our leader. Amen? Amen? Amen. So that's when Jesus saw Satan fall. Okay, question three. Why is Jesus rejoicing? The disciples are rejoicing because they got to throw down some demons, right? And they're really excited about it. And Jesus says, first he says, can I just correct you there a little bit and say what you really should be rejoicing about is that your names are written in heaven. We'll talk about that in a minute. But then what's interesting is Jesus says, now I'm going to show you what I rejoice about. And you think, I would like to know what makes Jesus rejoice. River West, what I am about to read is my favorite paragraph in the Gospel of Luke. And it's the most important paragraph in order to understand the heart of the Gospel. Please, will you pay attention while I read this again? You have to get this especially the phrase, gracious will. Here's what Jesus said, Luke 10. 
In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for that was your gracious will. That was your gracious will. And you read it and you go, I, I could read on. He talks about how he talks about his relationship with the Father. It's very Trinitarian. You have Jesus rejoicing the Holy Spirit, talking to the Father. This is, we're back in heaven now. The inner workings of the relationship of the Trinity. And now Jesus says, and in that relationship, here's what I rejoice in. And Jesus says, do you know what I rejoice in? I rejoice in the fact that God, in his perfect wisdom, decided that he would hide the beauty of the gospel from people who think they are wise and understanding. And he decided in his gracious will to reveal it to people who are humble, like babes, children. Amazing. That's the heart of the gospel. Imagine if... The people in the world who figured out the truth of God were the smartest people. It would be the most wicked community on the planet. It would be a community based on merit, based on effort, based on earning, based on cognitive faculties versus a community where the only difference is this is a community who in their humility recognize the limits of our ability as humans to understand reality. And then God in his gracious will says, I will reveal the truth of Christ to babes. Amazing. There's no such thing as an arrogant Christian. It's an oxymoron. Those words do not go together. Arrogant Christian. You know what I mean by an oxymoron? Okay, it's like civil war is an oxymoron. Okay. Airplane food, that's an oxymoron. Those don't go together. It's not food, all right? Okay, crash landing is an oxymoron, right? So is arrogant Christian. It's not, if at the moment that the, the beauty of Christ dawns on you, you don't put your head up, you fall to your knees and you say, God, you revealed that to me in your grace. Thank you. And now, I want to follow you on the way. On the way. So, you say to the pastor, who cares? <laughs> Tell me what to do. Okay, here's two things. I could give you a dozen, but here's two. Write these down. Number one, it's time to stop dating the church. Okay? Stop dating the church. You know what I mean by that? We're so casual. Like, yeah, we're sort of dating. We see each other now and again. The church is in the friend zone a little bit for me. And, uh, and then Jesus says, wait a minute, let me take you back up into heaven so you can see the church from God's heart and God's mind. We would say, oh, my relationship with the church is so casual. And Jesus would say, stop dating. It's time to commit. I need you. River West, can I tell you something? 
as your pastor, I'm standing before you asking you, please commit to our church with everything you have. I need your time. I need your talent. I need your giving. I need your generosity. I need you to serve in our children's ministry. I need you to get involved in our missions. The mission is massive. Our task is to take the gospel to every corner of the world. We cannot do it without you. Please stop dating the church. Amen? Amen. And number two, and we're going to do this right now, rejoice because your name is written in heaven. Rejoice. That's where you, your name is written. Oh, your body is right here, right now. Your body's on earth. But let me tell you something. That is not where your identity is. That is not where your spiritual destiny is. That is not even remotely where you're going to spend most of your time. (laughs) Your name is written in heaven. Who's in heaven? The eternal Christ. Who saw Satan fall like lightning. The eternal Christ who knows he's seen the register in heaven of the names and he knows that your name is written there and that it can never be erased by God's grace. And Jesus says, rejoice in that. And as we do, we'll keep going in Jesus' name and God will bless what's happening. And that's what I want more than anything. And I know you want it as well. And so let's pray about that this morning. Let's worship. Will you bow your heads with me and I'll invite the worship team to come. Heavenly Father, as we close our Bibles and as we set down our pens, we pray that that would not be the moment where we stop hearing from you or even being impacted by this passage, but that it would be the beginning, Lord. The beginning of our changed hearts and lives. Help us, God, to have a different perspective on Christ, on on his church, on who we are. We need it so much, Lord. Thank you, Father. We rejoice, Lord, that our names are written in heaven. And I'm sensitive right now, and, and I'm praying right now for any who have come who are wondering if that's true about, are you wondering about you? How would you know if your name is written there, you would know it in the moment that you turn. And maybe that moment is right now where you turn and you put your hope in Christ alone. If that's you, if you came in and you've held Jesus at a distance, if you're, if you're resisting, God is in his love. He's knocking on the door of your heart. He's pursuing you. Do not let this moment go. This is your moment in the depths of your heart to say, God, I believe everything that I've heard about Jesus. I believe what I've heard about sin, how devastating it is. My sin and the sin of our world, it's ruined everything. I believe about the story of Christ, this true moment you sent Christ to pay for sin on a cross. He died in my place. He rose again in victory. And so it is the name Jesus that is the name under heaven by which people can be saved. 
and I call on his name and I say, Lord, my hope is in Christ alone. Pray that prayer. And now you know your name is written in heaven. Hallelujah. And so, Lord, we worship you and we praise you and we sing now with all of our hearts. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.